I like to be surrounded by people who are asking more questions than they're answering. It's crazy that we would think that we all must continue to do tomorrow what we did yesterday. That's just like not a good idea or it's not a good obligation. This is Zaham Villamoria and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversation within the snow and avalanche world. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, with additional support from 10 Barrel Brewing and Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. I'm really excited to be kicking off this season. Uh, It's getting a little bit colder out there, and the leaves are starting to turn and fall from the trees, and and the first bit of snow is up in the hills. So uh, certainly getting very excited for the winter season the upcoming winter season and um, all the joys that winter brings to us so um, I bet you are as well and it's that time of year again if you haven't already make sure to renew your membership with the American Avalanche Association or A3 as it's commonly known A3 is really the common thread that connects the snow and avalanche community So whether you're a patroller, a forecaster, a search and rescue worker, or an avalanche educator, you can benefit from the A3 membership. Beyond the professional designation, A3 members get access to pro deals and opportunities for continuing education, scholarships to the International Snow Science Workshop, research grant funding, and a subscription to the Avalanche Review. If you aren't already an a3 member consider joining today they offer several different tiers of membership so even if you aren't a snow and avalanche professional you can still support the a3 through general membership visit www.americanavalancheassociation.org to learn more and renew or join today speaking of the a3 um, vsin usa has teamed up with the a3 to offer two pro avalanche education scholarships uh, for the year and so if you go to the show notes for this episode you can find a link to the application for the vsin usa um, pro avalanche education scholarship and they have set aside one of the two scholarships that they're they're providing to the community for Uh, a person from an underrepresented group within the community. So go on over to the show notes, click on the link to a Google form, and you can fill your application out. Remember, applications are due by October 15th, so make sure to do that ASAP. We are also entering the SAW season. That's right, the Snow and Avalanche Regional Workshops. Uh, that take place throughout different regions within the United States um, is kicking off 
in about a week, October 9th is the first one, and that's taking place in Silverton, Colorado with the Four Corners Snow and Avalanche Workshop. Um, for a full listing of where these regional workshops are taking place um, and the dates of them, you can find that on www.americanavalancheassociation.org backslash events. There are SAWs that are taking place both virtually and in person um, everywhere from the Northwest to Jackson, Wyoming to the Eastern Snow and Avalanche Workshop in North Conway, New Hampshire. Uh, there's one in Bend, Oregon, one in Bozeman, Montana, one in Sandy, Utah, and one in Anchorage, Alaska, as well as Whitefish, Montana. And many of these, like I said, are virtual, which is pretty cool to tap into the the collective knowledge base out of your normal operating area or recreating area. And so um, really take advantage of these this fall. It's a great way to get ready for the winter. Another great way to get ready for the winter is to plan your avalanche education for the, for the season. Um, no matter what level you're at, continuing education is an important part in being a good partner in the backcountry, as well as just developing your skills, um, either professionally or recreationally. And so, um, again, the AAA is a great resource for finding different providers in your area. These courses are filling up fast, and so um, it's not too early. It's definitely not too early to start planning out um, your avalanche education for the year. Um, and if, if you've taken a course in the last couple of years, maybe consider taking another rescue course. Um, again, it's, it's, we can never have enough of this continuing ed within our community. Well, let's get right into our feature interview for today's episode. I was recently able to sit down with Zahan Billamoria. Zahan is a IFMGA mountain guide based out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, these days, Z splits his time between working as a mountain guide, leading teams through some of the harshest and most challenging mountain environments, and as well as coaching others to reach their own athletic potential through his online training company, the Samsara Experience. Maybe you've recently seen Z featured in a film uh, produced and sponsored by Patagonia called Solving for Z, A Calculus of Risk. If you haven't seen that, uh, it's well worth your time to, to check that out, and you can stream that free online. Uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Zahan Billamoria. Hey, Z. Welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time, man. Right on. Thanks, Caleb. It's nice to be here with you. Yeah. I was hoping that maybe you could introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your background, where you're from maybe early memories in the mountains and then kind of your career path and how you've landed where you are today and, and some of your roles in the guiding world and, and some other ventures that you have going on these days. Sure. Um, let's see, I grew up in Switzerland. I was actually born in London. My parents were originally from India, so the mountains weren't really a part of my early childhood or a part of my parents' life um, before. But my brother and I, as we were growing up in Switzerland, just really started developing this interest for the mountains. And we would often hike and wander around in the mountains um, as kids with my parents. 
but it was really through skiing that our interest in uh in the mountains really kind of came to life and skiing is almost like a national sport in switzerland you know it's practiced in the same way that um football or a sport like that would be common here in the u.s so we became skiers as a whole family my parents weren't skiers prior to that um they had grown up my father grew up in india and my, my mother grew up mostly in europe but um since you know skiing is what people did we just kind of launched ourselves into becoming skiers as a family and that's really where it all began you know just um sliding around the slopes and um just being surrounded by these like towering peaks and and that's really what the alps are like is that even if you're skiing a mellow little hill you're just surrounded by these huge glaciers and towering rock faces so your mind really wanders and, and you start dreaming and thinking and then you're in these alpine towns like chamonix and places like that where these huge posters on the wall and these iconic climbers um just wandering around and as a kid you're your imagination kind of runs wild. And that's really what happened with me. My imagination just started running wild with these scenes of what it, what kind of an experience you could have up in these places. And I was just drawn to that. And then climbing came to me kind of in high school as another way to connect with the mountains. But I really had no mentorship or instruction of any kind. Um, there were alpine clubs, and that's where a lot of youth would have gotten connected to the mountains. But Switzerland's just a very monolithic cultural kind of society. And um, being a brown kid who wasn't from Switzerland, I just never even entertained the idea of going to such a... Um, that that It was just not a place where a kid who looked like me was going to find community and feel welcome necessarily. So I just kind of went at it my way with my friends. And um, that's really not the way you want to start climbing. Because climbing is like a very technical sport. Um, and, you know, backcountry skiing is also. But nonetheless, that's that was my connection to it. And um, we, we had our share of mishaps, to be totally honest, pretty early on and pretty serious ones, actually. Because... The mountains are so accessible in Europe because of all the infrastructure. So you don't have to have the fitness or the skills to be in that place in the first place. You can just get a cable car ride into that place. And then if you're bold and hungry and kind of courageous um, and young and foolish, it's very easy to get yourself into a situation that's very hard to back out of. And that did happen quite a lot in my early years. Um, but nonetheless, they're pretty good memories <laughs> all told because you know things did work out yeah so that those are kind of some recollections of my early connection to the mountains right and um and your family were they were they into you said they're into skiing did they get into climbing as well like your your folks or your brother my folks definitely did not in fact um they did get into skiing my dad especially um really started enjoying skiing. My dad just was always the happiest when he was wandering around the trails. And we had, um, we would spend our summers up in this very small little town called Comblu, um, going back and forth from Geneva. And we'd run away up there on the weekends. And I just remember 
just wandering around those ski areas in the summer, how happy my dad would be um, just taking photos and looking at the wildflowers and the mountains. So he definitely developed a strong connection to the wilderness through those experiences. But climbing being like a technical sport and a a kind of anti-gravity sport, that just was straight up dangerous in their minds and they weren't very keen on it. And they weren't actually very keen on me or yeah, they weren't really very keen on me becoming a backcountry skier and starting to venture outside of the confines of the skier, which I get. I mean, I really didn't have a lot of business being out there. And they didn't come from a culture where they could wrap their head around how you do that safely. It just seemed like a lot of hazard. And then, of course, I was also getting myself into trouble and um, having these close calls. So it didn't really uh, abate their fears any. So I think I made it hard on them in that way of just um, not really offering like a clear path of how I could progress in these things without getting hurt. So they were pretty nervous about that through most of my high school years and and kind of resistant to to me getting into it. So so how did that happen? What did that progression look like for you to become a backcountry skier and um, you know, you, you, you ventured to the U.S. and came out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Yeah, you know, it all really turned around uh, at the end of high school when I think that was sort of this culminating time where my parents were like, okay, this is not a like a, a passing phase for you. This is really something that's taken hold. You're really, really into this. And you've had a lot of close calls. So um, let's hire a guide. and we'll pay for you to go out with a guide for a day and just kick things off that way. And that really transformed my whole life because by just total fluke, I ended up with this guide, Christophe Profi, who was a very famous, in fact, probably like the most famous French guide of his generation. And I read all the magazines uh, in France and Switzerland and followed his career. And he had been doing these groundbreaking ascents in the Himalayas and these big link-ups in the Alps. So this guy was just like right in the bullseye of my radar. So to walk into the guide office and be assigned to go climb with Christophe, I was just blown away. And I remember so many details of that day, even though so many years ago. And what I most remember is that when that day was done, my career path and like my vision for my future was set in stone. I was like, I have to find a way to go from where I'm at now to being like this guy. And just the ease with which he just like flowed through the mountains um, and how he could perceive things that I was missing. And it was just beautiful. It was so elegant and so effortless. It was truly like a day at the office for him. We climbed this five pitch ice route, um, had just a great day. And he was really kind also, really like enthusiastic to see, you know, a, a young kid who really didn't have a lot of skills, but was clearly into it. Um, and then I moved to the U.S. pretty shortly after that. And I was on the East Coast, so there really wasn't the kind of mountains that I'd grown up around. And at first, I really was at a loss. I was just like, there's nothing here that would inspire somebody who grew up in the Alps. Like, you know, what can I look up at and be like, I wish I could climb that. There's nothing like that. 
but starting to connect with um, other people of similar passion. And then I found bouldering. And that was like my first connection when I came to the U.S. to um, to climbing again, which is very weird to me. It was very, very strange because I'd never even heard of bouldering. I didn't understand it. And we'd wander through the woods and then we'd find this little granite block and we'd sit on the ground and just, you know, try a move and fall back down. But eventually I did kind of start to fall in love with climbing from the point of view of like the movement and the challenge of it. And then we start climbing the granite crags in New Hampshire and, um, and then got into backcountry skiing in the White Mountains as well. So it all kind of started to unfold over my college years. Mm-hmm. And, and then from, from you graduated from college in, in Boston yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then, and you met your wife there as well, right? I did. Yeah. Kim and I met, um, our first week of our first year actually. And we dated other people and had our own lives. But then as the years went by, there was a pretty strong connection and we got married really shortly after college. And then from there, moved, headed west. Then from there, actually, we stayed in New England huh. uh, for a couple of years. I had a great few years there. I taught high school, and I really thought that that might be a career path that would work for me. But it was like this little moment where I sort of, in a good way, but I let go of that original childhood goal I had of becoming a guide and sort of following in the footsteps of Christophe and just the whole experience I had there. And I started teaching high school at a small um, small private high school called Pingree. And they offered me part of my job was running the outdoor program, which was a historic program. Actually, it had been in the works for many years. Lots of generations of kids had come through there and I had very wide, um, kind of a wide birth to do whatever I wanted. The, the school was really well funded. And so the outdoor club had all the kit and money to spend on trips. So that was just so much fun. And those couple of years, I was only, I was in my early 20s, you know, 23. And I was taking these kids out who were 16, 17, 18. We had a great time. And I think for a couple of years, I was like, oh, wow, I could just do this. This could be my thing. The community amongst the teachers was fantastic. But it wasn't long before I was starting to remember that I had a bigger dream in mind earlier on in my life. And I really did want to get back to it. And then um, at the end of the the first year, yeah, it was the very, the end of the very first year of teaching high school, I fell uh, climbing, pulled my gear out and decked. And I broke my back and I shattered my left wrist. And that was the beginning of a very long road to recovery. So that next year, I was really forced to find other things. And I found running at that time in my life, which was also new for me. Fell in love with running and um, really kind of chewed that bone for a while because I couldn't climb at all. That was completely out of the question. My wrist was um, really pretty damaged and had had major reconstructive surgery with lots of hardware. So climbing just wasn't going to be in the in the cards. I did ski some that winter, but I really fell in love with the endurance side of the equation at that time, which, you know, now looking back on that 20 years ago, I'm so glad I had that because that's also contributed to my life in some great ways. 
But by the end of that year, having really, you know, taken on running and gotten back into skiing, I was absolutely hungry to go back and climb again and to pursue that dream of being a guide. And I think one of the things that really like crystallized in my mind at that time was this sense of like, wow, life is short and it's unexpected. And when you're in your 20s, you don't think about life that way. You just think that you kind of feel like you have life figured out and, you know, the things that you do result in the outcomes that you want. That's what life felt like to me at that stage. And then, boom, you have this accident and you're like, wow, that's absolutely not what I wanted and that's absolutely not what I expected was going to happen in that moment. I was just having a great day climbing and that was so shocking to me at that time and it, it, it left me feeling like, wow, actually, you don't really know what's going to happen and... If there is something that you want in life, you better get after it now because you really have no sense of what the future may hold if you keep staying in this very comfortable place of being a high school teacher and, you know, settling into life on, on the North Shore, which really ultimately, you know, it wasn't going to be my my home for, for the long term. So at the end of the second year, after I'd kind of sufficiently recovered, Kim and I decided like, okay, this is the time. And we packed up our truck. I remember I built a wooden rack on top of my uh, little Toyota truck. We bought two big boxes, like Thule boxes. We filled one whole box with just canned food, <laughs> like cans and cans of spinach and corn and like as much food as we, you know, would last for a summer in one box. And the other box was all climbing gear. And then we drove out. And we pretty much landed right here in Jackson, actually. We spent the summer. It was a way different time back then. You could camp wherever you needed to. There were very few people in the mountains anyway compared to now. And we just started climbing, um, you know, starting with the small routes and then eventually up into the higher peaks. And it was just such a fun time um, for, for the two of us. We lived on $10 a day each, so 20 bucks a day. That included gas. So like if you wanted to travel anywhere, we really had to like bunk hunker down for a few weeks to save up money. And then as the weather got colder, we started bouncing to different areas further south. And we just had this epic summer of climbing and hanging out together. And um, that's also when I like started seeing what the guide community looked like. And actually right away when we arrived here, Rob Gowler, who was very and still is a very well-respected mountain guide, um, worked for Jackson Mountain Guides. We connected with him in the parking lot of the library where we were like cooking up some lunch. And he was like, oh, you guys should come stay at my place. And they were staying in this compound back in the day where all the mountain guides stayed. And I remember like going in there and seeing the whole scene and the community of the guides. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. This was the right call. Jackson is the right place. And I am now back in a place in my life where I can chase that goal that I'd had so many years ago. And that's really kind of how it played out. You know, I took my time with it and I had a bunch of interruptions, namely children. Um, we, we had kids in that period, which we were very psyched for. That's absolutely what I wanted in my life. But it's not the traditional path of becoming a guide. You kind of want to clear the runway of your life in order to be able to just really focus on being in the mountains and having this totally crazy schedule and waking up in the middle of the night. And I added kids to the mix. So everything just happened a lot slower, I think, than it might have otherwise. But that was all good with me. 
Kim got a job and I started teaching language school and doing these other things that sort of filled the gaps and enabled me to really like build up my experience um, in order to, you know, become a competent guide and, and just become a competent mountain traveler before that. Hmm. So, yeah, we moved to Driggs at that time and that was sweet. Driggs was like a small, sleepy little town. People were so friendly. You could make friends and, and really like build a little community around life in the mountains. Um, life was simple. It was awesome. And then, and then in the winters, you, you ventured into the backcountry and, and what did the early days of your backcountry skiing in the Tetons look like? Yeah. The early days of my backcountry skiing in the Tetons was, um, mostly on Teton Pass, very benign, simple terrain, but, um, just really figuring it all out, you know, cause the only backcountry, like human powered backcountry skiing I had ever done was on the East Coast. And that was like, you know, pretty much on rental gear or like very minimal equipment. And so there was so much learning for me to do and so much just development as a, as an athlete, um, you know, my fitness, my ability to, I was telemarking in those days, right? So like just skiing POW and then skiing Bakerville Crust and Windboard and there was so much I needed to learn and I had the time to do it. So I just skied my brains out that winter. Um, I just could not get enough of the whole experience. And by the time that winter was done, I was like, there's, there's got to be a way for me to map out a path to becoming a mountain guide because this is absolutely what I want to do with my life. I remember December 23rd, so two days before Christmas. It's my first year and myself, my friend Ed and my friend Justin Eyre climbed Buck Mountain and I, we stood on the top of Buck Mountain. I had a huge beard in those days and this like torn up puffy. I could, I still have it clear in my mind. And when I was on the summit of that mountain, I was like, okay, now this is it. Like this is the pinnacle experience that I've been questing for for so long. Now I just got to find a way to get paid to do this and, and to share this experience with others. Like guiding wasn't just a way to get paid. It was like a way to like immerse myself in this experience with these other people. I was totally sold on that idea. So who are, who are some of the folks that helped you along the way in the, in the early years to on that path towards becoming a guide? Well, uh, there was really just one main person. His name's Rich Rinaldi, and he is a, a longtime friend of mine at this point. And Rich owned Yosmark Backcountry Tours, which was a small uh, winter guide service on the western slope. Um kind of Teton Pass and then a lot of the um, kind of Teton Canyon area, which really didn't see much backcountry ski traffic in those days. And I went knocking on their door and I was like, I want to be a guide. And Rich, you know, kind of slowly, but eventually welcomed that idea. And I just spent years skiing around with him and his clients and kind of learning the ways of his style of guiding. Very, very client oriented very invested in the people uh and really not trying to like get a jump on the terrain or or just being very aggro in that way is very much about taking care of your people out there that's really how my career begun and it was great um and then i had other people in my life like don sheriff um who were more like you know don was uh 
you know, big mountain ski guide in Valdez and an avalanche forecaster and had um, been in really big terrain and had that other side of the equation that I always knew I also wanted. So I had people like that. And then I had partners, um, very few of whom are still around. But uh, AJ Linnell was was really one of my key partners at that time. AJ and I kind of came up through the ranks together. We took our avalanche education together. And then we just kind of tiptoed our way into the high peaks together. And that was a different time, right? Like there were no skin tracks going up Garnet Canyon. You were breaking trail everywhere you went. So there was a real sense of like adventure and uh, trepidation around going into the high peaks. I really didn't, I don't even think as an industry, we understood avalanches the way we do now. And I certainly didn't. And I knew that by that time, I'd seen enough things go sideways that I was very hesitant and and so was AJ, you know, so we just had a great few years venturing around the mountains together. And then Ray Landon was another huge uh, partner of mine who I spent those kind of years developing my skills with. And those guys were those guys were a huge part of my story for sure. And hopefully I was of theirs. Yeah, just just talking to you, I can tell you have a deep respect for the mountains. Right. And 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 what the mountains can do. Yeah, looking back on that in, in the first maybe four or five years of your time here in in the backcountry skiing around, do, do you feel like you were in appropriate terrain then? Or are there times that you feel like you were overcommitted and, and maybe you recall a, uh, a time that, that the mountains served you a lesson? Yeah, you know, those early years um... – I think I really, I, I was very methodical and very slow and, and patient about moving into the mountains. And confidence, you know, was quite low at that time. There weren't a lot of people storming around the high peaks anyways. And I lived in Driggs, so they were far, you know, as far away. Um, and I had young kids. And I just didn't have that much sense of my own skills yet so i think there was a bunch of years there where things moved pretty methodically pretty slowly uh rich you know was a mentor who wasn't you know he wasn't going to be the guy out there like skiing the grand you know every other tuesday kind of thing he was he was very measured so i i really adopted that um but then i kind of flipped a switch somewhere in there you know when yeah, I did. I really flipped a switch somewhere in there. We moved to Jackson. That was about, I can't say for sure, but say like eight, nine years ago now. Um, yeah, maybe even 10. And then I moved to Jackson and I started working for Exxon. So then I really started connecting with like this like group of guides who were on another level, who were really just they were like heroes, right? They were, you know, the era of like Doug Coombs and Alex Lowe and all these guys. And that was the legacy of the guides. So moving from like the Drig scene to the Jackson side and then joining Exum and I was pretty young and then all these older guides who were just on a whole different level from me. Um, that really like sparked something. And I had spent enough time and invested enough of my education and everything that for whatever set of reasons, that became my time. And that's when I really started becoming much more aggressive in the mountains. And that just 
there was a, a, a series of years there where I just couldn't get enough and I was just chewing my arm off every day, you know, every day I just wanted to ski something bigger and just get after it. I just could not satiate the hunger. And through those years, you, you feel like you were still methodical and, and maybe talk about some of the systems that you tried to implement to, to manage your risk in the backcountry. I was certainly methodical, but ultimately like what I could say now is like methodical isn't going to save you. Like methodical is just what it takes to get in the door, but it's certainly not enough um, to ensure a good outcome. And that was the period of my life where, you know, I had the highest, most out great experiences of, of really like, doing things that I thought were super adventurous, which now, of course, you know, the young guides, you know, they do these things on like a regular basis. It's, it's funny what, you know, what I thought was so groundbreaking then, like talk to Adam and Clark and all these guys out now. And, you know, there's a whole new generation of guides that have just um, totally smashed those boundaries, which I think is rad. But, you know, for me at that time, um, I think that I really, I, anyway, in retrospect, I think I see that as much as I really was so studious and so diligent about the way I went into the mountains, I lost so many friends in that, in those few years. Um, and almost all of them to avalanches. Steve Romeo died and Ray died. I mean, heck, the list goes on. So many guys died, right? And, it's not because they were being foolish. It's just because we were meeting our match in the mountains of our understanding of the mountains uh, and our understanding of snow, which is just so dynamic and so complex. And ultimately, what determines the outcome is something that's happening below the surface of the snow, right? So it's not, it's not something that's legible on the surface. You know, you can look at rock in the summertime and say, oh, that's very fractured. Like, I think I'll leave that little section alone. That's just really shattered rock. Like, what's going on with snow is something that's happening that's not perceptible to the eye, it, and it never will be. Um, we can read these signs that tell us a story about the snow, and then we can interpret that story, and if we interpret it well enough, then we're going to come out on the right side. But we're ultimately trying to decipher something that's just truly unknowable and luckily in a way I didn't really perceive that at that time because if I had um I'd be old and wise and I wouldn't have been so bold and had those experiences you know and those experiences are rad and um I'm not sorry for them uh, it was a great time in my life but I'm not there now I won't be skiing the auto body and powder ever again you know that was awesome but twice was plenty and now it's like yeah no i just the transition from then to now when i look back on then the big difference is confidence hmm. you know um that's the that's the thing that's permanently changed in my life now like my sense that like i kind of have this world figured out i kind of know what's going on i can tell you what slope's gonna have lunch yeah no Mm -mm. that's never coming back again and i'm good with that you know like i i still will pursue skiing in big mountains and doing wild things 
but it's it's much less frequent. And when I'm there, that sense of like, yeah, I got this. Let's just dive in and we'll do we'll do one, two, three, and go. No, it's it's more measured now. And I'm also more doubtful of all the people around me. And there, when other people in my party express great confidence, then my lack of confidence goes through the roof. I like to be surrounded by people who are asking more questions than they're answering. Because that's really what, you know, what I've learned through all these things going sideways and all these moments where you think you've got it figured out and then you find out you really didn't. Um, you realize like, no, this whole thing is an exercise in guessing and there's great educated guessers out there, but, um, I won't fault any of them for getting avalanche because that's all they're really doing is making the best guesses they can. So if, if uncertainty is that given on, on most days out in the backcountry, like how do you manage that uncertainty? How do you head out with a, a group of clients and, and keep them safe and avalanche train for the day. Yeah. You know, I mean that uncertainty, like it correlates with the terrain, right? Mm. So it's easier to feel confident in reasonable terrain, even big terrain, but like terrain that that has some elements of simplicity where the runouts are clean perhaps you know um the secondary hazards aren't overwhelming um the run can be skied in two or three pitches and then you can be out of the hazard that type of terrain you know we can i think have like a reasonable level of confidence with not perfect by any means and certainly the days that you would most want to ski that terrain when it's most desirable, the pow is, you know, at its prime, those are the days that, of course, are going to have the most uncertainty. But day in, day out skiing, um, I think I feel good with in the sense that I'm like, yeah, there's an element of risk and there's an element of risk in all things in life. I've made peace with that. I can enjoy myself out there and I can feel really reasonable taking other people who are moms and dads and um, being confident I can bring them home safe. Yeah, that's that's good. But then there's this other level of terrain which doesn't really happen everywhere, but it happens here in the Tetons. And um, that's really aspirational and it's wild and it cliffs out and you're going to be building anchors on a 50-degree slope, pounding a piton into a wall, you know, and... and and there the margins are so slim and that's really the type of terrain that I'm much more hesitant about now. But it's a yin and yang thing for me because I still do, you know, when I see my friends out there doing that stuff, I I can close my eyes and I can imagine myself there and it puts a big smile on my face. I'm like, wow, that's so much fun. It's so adventurous, you know, just you and your crew and you're like really dialed into each other and the terrain and you're listening you're really listening. You're really like tuning in and dialing in. That's just intense and it's it's fun. But um, there's maybe a little bit less room for it in my life right now, which, mm. you know, it's, that's okay. I'm good with that. Can you recall a, a specific time when, when maybe the pressure of 
because you've done some work with Teton Gravity Research, right? Like guiding some of their athletes and doing some risk management for them. And, and has there ever been a time when you've just really had to shut it down? Or has there been a time when, in retrospect, you wished that you had shut it down um, when those margins got too thin? Yes, absolutely. But they're not when I was working or with GGR. I mean, the mm. TGR operation is tight is tight and like the things that I, the only things that i've done with tgr are like these sort of like alpine complex missions right mm -hmm. it's not like there's you know there's a lot of different roles that guides play there some of them are just like overseeing you know the wild free ride skiing where it's just like spines and cliffs and guys and girls are just absolutely sending it that's not really been where i've been involved it's been more like in the high alpine style and in that environment i mean everything's tight and the margins are actually pretty big a lot of times a lot bigger than they are when we're going up by ourselves there might be a helicopter involved but even if there isn't there's a number of other parties that are all stationed right around you communications are clear and everybody's super focused so those have not been terribly um on the edge experiences mm -hmm. but um i can definitely i definitely look back on certain moments i remember one time i had some friends in town and um none of them i think it skied the grand before and we had a light snowfall say like five or six inches at the village and i was like boom today's gonna be the day and i don't know why i don't know what b i had in my bonnet but um uh, once we got to the bottom of the teepee the snow had actually started to slab up more than i had anticipated and um all of the guys were like hey we could just spin at any time but I just wasn't in that mindset. And I was just in this mindset where there is like, I can thread this needle. Like I woke up that morning just deciding that there was a needle to thread and I was just going to go out and find the needle and then I was going to thread it. And that's really how I behaved the whole day. And I look back on that. And I'm like, what a fool. Like, why? Why were you so hell bent on it? And there were so many moments where the mountains were like, whoa, you really want to just forge up there? And I really did, you know, um, I look back on that as, as one of those moments where, you know, it was, it was like an emotional state of being that contributes to that. It's not about skills or the pressure anybody else is putting on me. It's just like this confidence that I could wake up with at that period in my life where I just felt like, yeah, I got this. I can read the signs right? I can read the signs. And even when the signs are starting to like wave a flag, I'm like, oh, I'll just walk around that flag. There's a way, there's a way through. And that was like the art of it is always finding a way through like, oh, you stumble into the slab and you're skinning, take your skis off, just down climb around it and find a way up. Like, no, that's just, that's just foolish. Um, but there, there was a period in my life where I allowed that kind of confidence to rule the day i think well it seems like you've learned quite a bit from that period of your life right like you've taken the time to reflect on those experiences and tried to put in place some controls maybe emotional controls in your guiding and personal endeavors in the mountains to create bigger margins is that fair to say yeah i but i think for me like the thing that you know, and even like why I'm here and why I feel 
inclined to talk about these things is because the reason that I can say like, oh yeah, I'm on the other side of that curtain now. I kind of can look back and have all this wisdom and everything. It's because I've seen friends die. It's because I've held people while they're dying. And I've gotten so many of those phone calls from a friend of a friend of like, hey, Ray got avalanche today and, you know, he's not coming home. And hey, Steve's been out and we haven't heard from him overnight. And like those experiences are like a truck, you know, it's like getting hit by a truck. And if I have some purpose now, it's like I can look back and see how I could have or I don't know this, but I wonder if I could have come to the place that I'm at now without having had so many of those experiences. Well, if I think I can enable that path and that like perspective for a younger generation of skiers without having to have had so much fatality, then I'm all for that. And that's ultimately where I feel like my purpose is now is like, I'm like, hey, listen up because not everybody has to journey down this road. You don't all have to be involved in these accidents, perhaps, you know, but you, you know, you can learn from those of us who have and get that perspective that like, it's like a tempering, right? It's, it's a tempering that comes from, you know, the beat down that you get when people you really care about don't come home. And I think that that for me has really helped to um, shape who I am today, I really like to pass that on. Hmm. In this day and age, it's, it's even harder, I think, to quiet some of the distractions from social media. You know, it's very easy to look at what other people are doing in the mountains and it's really in your face. Right. And, and I think there's a, I think there's a certain level of fear of missing out that people have of that powder day. And, and, you know, there's on one hand, there's access to so much information and so much education, digital mentorship, and, um, you know, all of the information is there. And I think it, like you've mentioned, it kind of comes back to those human emotions of having to temper what's appropriate and what's not appropriate to do in the mountains. And that's, that can be really muddied, I think, in this day and age by seeing people, get after it on social media. Um, and sometimes these photos aren't even from the given time period, right? It's from a, a period when maybe the snowpack is more stable or, or whatnot. Um, any, any ideas on how that younger generation can kind of use that information, but, but temper the emotions of, of maybe feeling like they're missing out? Yeah. I, there's there's so many pieces to that puzzle. I mean, for me, it it in a way it's a little bit even hard to relate because I don't. It, I'm older now, right? I'm like in my early forties. I've been skiing for twenty years. I've had so many great experiences. I know I have plenty more. I live in the mountains also, and my career is in the mountains. So like, I don't fear of missing out much because it's all right here, mm. and um. But that's so different for so many people, right? Perhaps you're traveling and this is your one window to get into the mountains, you know, or you're just young, you're in your 20s. And when you're in your 20s, I mean, the hunger is just more intense, as I recall. And I didn't have social media at that time. So it's hard to imagine even what it's like for that younger generation. 
especially those who don't live in the mountains for whom the experience is scarce. And I think another factor that to me seems like just as big or even bigger is the crowding in the mountains, right? So like you are right to be anxious that that line might be tracked out because it might well be, right? Like that's a real thing. Um, it's not like a virtual thing. Like if you don't put the hammer down and get to the top of the line first, you know, then what are you going to do? What if there's another party halfway down? What if it's totally tracked up? What if you drop in and you see a party right above you? Like all of those things, man, they muddy the waters so much. Social media is attached to all that, I guess, because that's what might drive people to go to certain places. Um, yeah, that's hard. I don't really, I don't really have a lot of wisdom there. You know, I think that, I think that's hard. Mm -hmm. And and it's hard for people to relate to the experiences that you've had of, of loss in the mountains. I think, um, you know, until you've been there, it can be hard to fully feel all those feelings. Right. Um, but, you know, we haven't mentioned the film that came out uh, just last year, Solving for Z, Calculus of Risk, that I, I felt like was a, an amazing film to, to help, at least help me uh, grasp with tempering some of those emotions. And you talk about losing some friends in the mountains and having a close call yourself and maybe just as we've been discussing this morning, coming to the realization that sometimes it's just not worth it, right? Totally. I, I think that's that's such a great point to bring up. I love that. Um, I, I think that it's crazy that we would think that we all must continue to do tomorrow what we did yesterday. That's just like not a good idea. Or it's not a good obligation, right? Like, um, just because that's who we were, that's who we must continue to be. And that's something that as a guide, you can really struggle with because, you know, in this community in Jackson, like there's a lot of respect given to the guides. You know, if you walk into social situation, people say, what do you do? And you say you work for Exum. It's like, okay, tip your hat. You get all this respect and that respect kind of becomes part of your identity and you're a leader and, you know, you enable the impossible for people, all these sorts of things. And then you can really start to feel so great about yourself. I get that. I, I've, I've loved my career, but it's really probably not a career that should be thought of for like your whole life. It's a chapter or at least that's how I see it, you know, especially if you're the kind of guy that really hungers for those kind of more out there experiences. Like that's something that you should enjoy, but you should also see is maybe having a bit of an expiration date and having a, another chapter beyond that. And that's something that Rich instilled in me right from day one, well before he ever paid me to go out with anybody. He's like, you have to have a plan B. You have to have this parallel thing going on in your life so that if guiding becomes too complicated, if you wake up one morning and you don't feel the same way about the mountains as you did before, they have this option. And for me, when I lost friends, I really did go through a period of very genuinely asking myself, like, you know, should I move on from this? Should I let this whole thing go 
And I didn't just assume that the answer was no, no, I must continue. Like, no, bullshit. You must not continue. That's There's no must in this. You just like, you have to follow your passion. And if the passion is like too muddied by fear and anxiety, that's fine. Like there's so many other ways to make a living, move on. But for me, that whole process of having to really like ask that question, taking months, I took months away from the mountains after Stephen and Luke died. I did not want to go back into the mountains and I didn't force myself to. Um, but the thing that all of that did for me is it helped me to come back to a place where I really asked like, well, why and what is it that you really want? And for me, that really crystallized this idea that for me it is about wilderness and it is about nature and it's about like, I'm just in love with nature. Um, and so that has really helped me now because we can come back to that conversation around like FOMO and social media and all those things. It's like, if you really get down to the root of it for me, like when I click into my bindings, it's like I'm running out to go find some nature. And if I can have the wind on my face and just be out in this wild, untrammeled place and just storming around up there, that's and there's another element for me is exercise. I need to use my body because that's also part of nature, right? Like that's how I'm wired as a human being is I'm a human being in a human body. And if that body can get out and find its purpose in wild terrain, woof, that's usually going to cut it for me. Even if the snow sucks, I'm fine really. Like it doesn't really matter that much. It's if I had like a true wilderness experience and I shared it with a friend, it's, it's hard for me to not be really, really psyched when that happens. I think that was different early on. It was more objective, like about the ski the this and climb the that. Now it's just like, I just need to feel wilderness. Um, and that, you know, I'm a dad, right? Like my kids are in high school now and I've only got a few years left with them. And I'm like, if there's one thing I'm going to force on you is wilderness. You don't, I don't care if you love skiing. I don't care if you love climbing. I, I must, as a, as a dad, I must expose you to the, the joy of just the quiet wilderness and, and the healing power of nature. Mm, well said. And, and it seems we were talking earlier uh, before we hit record, but you, you, you're kind of entering another chapter of, of a career move in, in terms of functional training, right? Physical training with people and coaching. And maybe you could talk just a little bit about um, some of what you're doing with that. Yeah, for sure. That's also been a part of my life for a long time, actually, because of Rich, right? Rich right away was like, you have to have a parallel career. Guides get injured um, and different things can happen. And even in the economy, that could really compromise your ability to make a living as a guide. So for me, there was always this parallel passion with human performance. And I raced a lot in my 20s. That was a big part of where I kind of um found my satisfaction ray and i connected through endurance sports and things so um i began coaching about 10 years ago and coached one-on-one -on -one where i'd have a small group maybe about 12 to 15 athletes i'd meet with them every couple of weeks i'd write their training plans and so on and then covid hit and i got injured both at the same time took catastrophic um you know, fall and 
Cornish avalanche accident that was in film. And so when I came home, I was really, it, it cleared guiding off my plate for a, the foreseeable future. I had major shoulder surgery. So it was like, is this a time where I could like pivot and adapt and bring my coaching into a whole new place where I could make it a much bigger part of my life? And I was so psyched on that. And so that's what we did. And um, now we're like a six-person team at Samsara. We coach athletes from all around the world. We have this group of 50 athletes, about 45 athletes at the moment, um, that we work with every day in groups. We train live together. We go on trips together. And I'm deeply involved in their training. It's just such a huge part of my life and such a huge part of my future. I'm so excited about it. Um, and yeah, you know, our philosophy is very much rooted in an understanding of human biology and the way that the human system responds to its environment and how humans for all of human history have been a physical product of our environment, just like the plants and animals have too, right? Um, we make adaptations that are those that are natural world demands of us. And now we live in a world that's very separated from that, right? In desk chairs and sidewalks and we drive cars and do all these things, and but we want to be high performers in our sport. How can we um, continue to stimulate the type of adaptation in our bodies across all of these different systems, aerobic system, our fascia system, so forth, neurological system? How can we stimulate those adaptations to keep us being rooted in our innate athletic selves as human beings capable of doing all of these different things from, you know, we train like, we we have a woman on our team who's a, a distance swimmer. She lives in the bay and she swims like three, four miles out to Alcatraz and back. We have athletes that have competed in the Olympics at distance running and downhill skiing. So, so many different sports. But ultimately, it comes back to recoding that innate athletic capacity that's linked to being a human. It's not something you go and get. It's actually something you almost retrieve um, by undoing some of the dysfunction that comes with living in a modern life. So I'm super passionate about training and, and working with athletes. And it's just an awesome tandem to my life as a guide. And really right now it's it's a bigger part of my life than than um, guiding is as far as like number of days. Mm -hmm. So we've got a listener question here. Um, somebody's interested in, in knowing what like the end of a day debrief would look like for you after ski touring out in the park with a bunch of clients or, or, you know, anywhere, I suppose, in, in the backcountry. You, you seem like a very reflective person, Z, and, and so I'm sure um, reflecting upon the day is an important part of your process in the mountains. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Um, I mean, for me, I think I really like an open process or I really like like open communication, you know, even while, while guiding, like just, I, I like, I like to be in the mountains with people who can strip away the filters that they feel like they need to keep up in order to maintain some appearance or maintain some, some sense of like being perfect. I really like to break that down for myself. I, I, I really like that open style of communication, you know, like if we went out skiing and you felt that I was like too heavy handed in some way, like I'd really like to be in a place where and be the kind of person that you'd be like, Manzi had a great day, but 
ooh, I felt like you were a bit forceful there, you know, or I, I'd like to say that of someone else, or I'd like to reflect on my own, like, moment of, like, making a decision, what were the um, thoughts going through my head, or just, like, a very open process, I guess, and sometimes that's more relevant than others, so I don't have any, like, formal process, but I think the people that go into the mountains with me know that, like, we're going to talk about it, you know, um, because it's it's complex and it's intimate too. Backcountry skiing is is an intimate thing to go and be in a place where you are going to rely not just on their rescue skills. Hopefully, you never rely on that, but you are going to rely on their perspective, their input, their thought process, their observations. Um, and for me, the fact that I accept money from people doesn't really compromise that. Like, I'll still take your observations, and if Somebody I'm skiing with, like a client, is having an irrational or or irrational fear. I'm not going to shut it down. You know, like, let's voice that. Let's talk about that. I might have a different opinion on what's going on in the snow. But if you can't get around the fact that it's really making you uncomfortable, don't count on me to be the guy who's going to force you in there. Because what for? Like, what do I bring to the table if I force you to do something that you are uncomfortable with? And if you were to ask me, like, am I 100% sure this is going to go the way I think? Of course, the answer is going to be no. So, you know, I like that open style of communication. Yeah, and, and certainly not waiting until the end of the day debrief to bring those things up. Right, right? that's like the thing. Creating right? that yeah. culture where you can have that open communication with your partners or your clients, you know, in the mountains is so important. Yes, yeah, so well said. And that's maybe why I hesitated even a little bit at the beginning with the idea of like debrief because it's like the debrief isn't really a separate thing. It's just like part of the chatter that started, you know, when you rolled into the trailhead and you kind of checked in with each other on like, oh, what's your like general vibe on the day to day? Like, oh, I think we should go ski the Grand. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that's where we're going. That's a certain type of mindset, certain frame of mind, certain pace, certain like, focus as opposed to like just want to you know go skiing where i won't see a lot of other people okay that's a different mindset you know and then it just the whole day just keeps getting on uh, it just keeps unraveling or unfolding from there and then when you're out of the hazard and you're like taking a breath then yeah i guess you could call that debrief but it's like you said it's just this ongoing chatter mm-hmm well, Z, I really appreciate you taking the time today to sit down with us and share some of your experiences and wisdom from the mountains with the community. Um, to, to the listeners, if you haven't watched Solving for Z, highly recommended. And you can find that on um, just if you enter that into Google. It's a free stream online. So check that out if you haven't. And you can see more of Z and his element. Right, Arkeb, that was super fun, and uh, I really love talking about these things. And um, like you said at the beginning, building community in this like disparate world of the of the backcountry—it's um, just been a great chance to dive into that. All right, cheers, man. Sweet, take it easy. Hey, thanks for tuning in today, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Musical tracks on today's episode 
were Own World and I Overjoy by Ketza. You can find more of Ketza's tracks at www.ketza.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. Give us a follow on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour podcast on Instagram and Facebook. You'll be able to stay up to date on the newest releases of our podcast episodes, as well as interact with uh, listener-based questions for upcoming interviews. I appreciate those of you that have been following the the Avalanche Hour podcast stories. Um, I've been posting upcoming interviews and soliciting questions from listeners. So um, it is a bit unrealistic to think that I can incorporate every question into these interviews. It's amazing how fast an hour goes by in great conversation, but I'll do my best um, to incorporate those. And I do really appreciate your, your uh, interactiveness on the socials here. So keep it up. Our website is currently under construction. That'll be up back up and running hopefully in a couple weeks here uh, with a bit more of a streamlined look and access to older episodes and some contributor bios and other resources and such. So be looking for that in the next couple weeks and appreciate your patience with that. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.